Did you know Higher Ed's premier tech conference, Elucian Live, is almost here. Join industry leaders in New Orleans, March 26th through 29th. Discover insights and game-changing solutions to unlock possibility and drive student success. Register at elive.elucian.com. Epic. Three higher ed authors, 100-plus college and university presidents, dozens of actionable insights for academic leaders. Commencement, the beginning of a new era in higher education, is now available on Amazon. Welcome back, everybody. It's your time to end up on the Edup Experience podcast, where we make education your business. In fact, it's going to be your business today, so much so that I'm going to pass the mic. It's actually an old Beastie Boys song for you Beastie Boys fans, pass the mic, to uh, this gentleman. You know him, you love him. I did not download the sound that goes along with him. It, uh, it's a gong. It goes bing. And he's Dr. Bill Peppicello. He's former president of the University of Phoenix, and he's taken over the interviewer. Uh, he's, he's the interviewer today. And Kate Colbert and I, who is also joining, are the interviewees. And we're going to talk about commencement, the beginning of a new era in higher education. Bill, you get to do the honors, my friend. Well, thank you, Joe. And uh, Kate and Joe both, good to be with you today. And uh, yeah, for those of you who... Uh, who are not aware of the fact uh, Joe has a hard time handing over the keys to the car, but, uh, <laughs> but today I'm, I'm going to drive. This is and, not true. Uh, I know I'm going to speed Joe. So in any event, uh, this is the second uh, in a series of uh, interviews about commencement. Um, and for those of you who uh, did not listen to the previous episode, I'll tell you what you missed. Tell and us, Bill. You need to go back to episode 541 of the You Ed can't Experiment. handle the truth. Yeah. <laughs> and, and remember that the dude abides. Um, but in that episode, we talked about who should read this book, why they should read the book, and pretty much it was uh, everybody should, should read it because everybody is touched by higher education in one, one way or another. Um, we talked about what the book is and what it's not, and that it's not a case study. Um, it's not a dry academic um, delving into um, issues. It's really just a, a series of um, uh, interviews with a variety of presidents uh, with no script. Uh, and I had the, the, um, the good fortune of participating in a number of them. Um, and it's, that's why it's, it's interesting. What you're getting is real. Um, and then we talked about how the book can be used. And we talked about the fact that it's, uh, you know, it, it's a textbook. It's an opinion piece. Um, uh, you know, it's, a, it's an ashtray. It's a refrigerator magnet. It's just all kinds of stuff uh, that can be used in, in, in lots of different ways. And if you've been following some of the reaction on LinkedIn, I think it's really interesting as people are showing you there are dog-eared pages that are, have all kinds of notes in them. So it's, it is having an impact. So uh, before we get into this, I just want to say, if you haven't ordered the book yet, you can go on Amazon. It's there. I'm getting no kickback from this. Um, <laughs> and I was the first Nailed person it. to read the book. You need to know yes, that. Um, Nailed it. I downloaded it and, um, and, and read it the first night. So 
we talked about what some of the important messages are in the book and driving uh, change through the book, and then a little bit about the, the current education uh, landscape. So that brings us to today. And today what we're gonna do is we're gonna peek a little bit into the weeds. Uh, the first interview was a little bit more high level. Um, and so today I wanna look at some issues and themes and it'll, it'll give you a better idea about why you want to get this book, because some of the, the themes that run through it are important um, to everyone everywhere. And the, uh, the first one I want to talk about has to do with um, a couple of the, uh, the chapters in the book, um, one called Keeping the Lights On and one called Where Have the Students Gone? Um, and it talks about the business model in higher education and what's going on with that. Now, young Joe tells us that higher ed is ripe for disruption. Um, and I think probably at the heart of that disruption would be uh, a new business model. So you know, drawing on the conversations that you, know, you had with the presidents, how would you build a new model? What's at the center of it? Joe? Yeah. Um, boy, that's a toughie. Because, you know, it's funny, because when you look back at those interviews, there were uh, so many different types of models. And, and you think about um, the GCAS episode, the global uh, GCAS, the global center for advanced studies that was based out of Dublin with Creston, Dr. Creston Davis, who was running his own cryptocurrency that uh, students could could get the tokens and then reinvest them in the business in in that it's debt free and it's based and built on the backs of its students who then care about it um look i i don't know the answer if i did i'd, I'd go and build it uh, but i think that i think that here's what i do know i do know that the tuition dependency has um an end point for most schools especially those that don't have multi-billion dollar endowments, right? Tuition dependency. We talk about diversifying revenue streams and what those look like. I think micro-credentialing and stacking is giving institutions another way to expand through the current business model, which is tuition for degree, expense for faculty and et cetera, and a margin that, you know, or, or lack of a margin in, in some instances. But you know, micro-credentialing, I think we're seeing the beginning of, of business and higher ed partnership. And you wonder, um, you wonder when is the degree that is, when's the degree coming or the micro-credential? And, and Google's an example, but they have their own, you know, they have their own certificates. Where's the degree powered by? Google, you know, in in conjunction with XYZ University, where you slap this big institutional or big business name on the degree, it's maybe informed, um, the curriculum's informed by Google, you know, at some point, the credit hour, you know, it's federal and all that, but university institutions go with company based uh, company competency, oh, gosh, one of those days, competency based education, where you're kind of taking the constant of time and reducing it. Um, I think there has to be reformation of what general education is and how it's applicable. What is it? Um, and, and ultimately, you know, membership models and loyalty rewards programs and, and, uh, you know, uh, uh, what's the word I'm looking for sponsorship models and, uh, um, 
you know what I'm talking about, like the Netflix model. You just wonder how those future think tech, those future technology companies, how those types of models could be adapted through higher education. You know, maybe you get charged, maybe maybe you take your classes, you don't have to pay all at once. Maybe you're just paying a little at a time. There are income share agreements. There's just a lot out there to pull from. And I think it will look different in the future for a lot of institutions. It's a, it's a question of when and how, Bill. And, and if I, w I don't have a better answer than that, but I just see a lot of innovation in a lot of places, but no one doing it perfectly either. And nobody has to do it alike either. And I think that's one of the things to remember, you know, that that in the past, you know, tuition dependence, uh, focus on 18 to 23 year olds who, you know, it, were coming straight from mom and dads to a, a campus for a coming of age undergraduate experience, that cookie cutter um, that thousands of institutions in the United States and additional thousands um, across the world um, have been trying to somehow put their own flair or brand or name on over the years um, is no longer working well, as Joe said, and it's not required that your institution look exactly like the other one and that you follow the same model. In fact, students are savvier, learners are savvier than they used to be, and they want to understand what makes college A different from university B and what makes them meaningfully different. Um, I was just before um, recording this episode came from um, a research, um, uh, research meeting where we're doing a lot of research with high school sophomores and juniors and their parents. Um, and we asked them, show us a little bit about how you're deciding, you know, which 20 schools do you think about and how do you narrow it to 15 and 10 and five and how do you apply? And kids were literally taking pieces of paper and making, it almost looked like they were doing like, um, you know, they're, they're trying to figure out um, the brackets, you know, for basketball or something. They had these lists and then they had ranks like, you know, this is this is a stretch school. This is a tweener, like this, they're between like my favorite and my, you know, uh, sort of safety. And they had ranking numbers and they were coming up with these concepts. And um, so I think that, you know, Joe is absolutely right. We have to start trying new things. A lot of institutions are trying new models um, and we have to be listening to what the learner. Um, and by the way, the learner is is not just an 18 year old who wants to live on a campus for um, a, a coming of age experience that, you know, the vast majority of learners are, you know, working adults, you know, who have children and spouses and, and a lot on their plates. Um, the model has to shift. And I would say that of all the interviews that were done for this book, um, the models where they had a lot of success in terms of they were attracting a lot more students, their balance sheet is looking better. They've diversified revenue streams. These were the institutions um, that have said, we want to welcome a lot more people. We want to create more access for more kinds of learners. We want to, to, to Joe's point, we want to diversify our revenue streams. So not just have different kinds of students, but also sell more than just degree programs and certificate programs, but what else do they do? Do they partner with corporate education, et cetera? Um, and we, I was, I personally was really particularly struck by the college and university presidents who talked to us in terms like, you know, I think of myself as a business development expert. It's my job to make sure that we're offering programs here that align with the jobs that are being, um, you know, hired for in our region or 
the most important thing I do as a president is I have meetings with people in industry. I think it was uh, Melody Rose, um, who had been the um, former chancellor of the Nevada system of higher education. She said that she thinks it's really vital that we're partnered with industry um, to figure out how to meet the needs, not just of education with quotes around it, but how do we meet the needs of workforce development? And so I, I do think um, that we need to bet big on partnerships, and as, as Joe said. And so the model is changing um, and University A and University B can operate under different models. But at the end of the day, the learner or the student has to be at the center of that model. Wow, bingo. That's, I think that's what both of you were, were getting at, that if you're gonna build a new model, uh, I think you did a great job of talking about some of the nuts and bolts. I think the funding model is, is going to be, uh, you know, right at the center there, but it all has to start with the student and with the diversity of, of students. Um, and you made an interesting point, Kate, talking about uh, president who said he was a, a business development person. Yeah. As one of the terms that, that comes up in the book from time to time uh, is entrepreneurial higher education. Yeah. And if you were going to define that in, you know, 25 words or so, what what does that mean to be a, a, an entrepreneurial uh, president or institution? I think he's asking you, Kate, I'll tell you. Uh, well, I don't know. I mean, just because I'm an entrepreneur. No. Um, so, you know, we use that term in a couple of different ways in the book. One, we actually talk about institutions that are really well known for producing entrepreneurs. So the folks like Babson College, so the interview with Dr. Stephen Spinelli. Um, but, but we also had several presidents talk about this idea of entrepreneurship or intrapreneurship inside of an institution. How, if you're the, if you're a vice president that oversees admission or you're the director of marketing or you work, you know, in, um, you know, the library and resource center at a university. How do you think about what it is that you do instead of just doing what you did yesterday and doing what your predecessor in that role did and doing what that institution has done for the last 140 years or whatever the case may be? How do you start thinking like entrepreneurs and start saying, we could build a better mousetrap, right? And so, the, and the pandemic, by the way, forced a lot of colleges and universities to build better mousetraps to say, okay, well, crud. You know, when it came to our library, it was very, you know, you go into the stacks and you get the book and you check them out or we use it whatever. And now the students aren't coming to our campuses. So now what? Or, boy, we've really noticed that people are working different hours because they've got to take care of their kids who are home from school during a pandemic. And, you know, our, you know, our business office, you know, for people to pay their tuition used to only be open Monday through Friday, nine to five. And people are logging in with questions at night and on weekends, and we're not here to help them. Maybe we need to think about that. And how do we change that? And so, so, you know, it's, it's should be obvious, but a lot of institutions have really been stuck in their status quo and comfortable with their status quo for a long time. And, and these last couple of years, the 2020s have really sort of shaken us um, out of that old sort of tired model and said, think like an entrepreneur. Like if your, it, your piece of responsibility at this institution were a business, which by the way, it is, <laughs> but people don't always think about it that way. How would you reinvent it? You know, if you're, if you know, start listening to those customers, what are the students saying? Um, and are you asking students for, for their feedback often enough? And, and, and are they 
voting with their feet when they're dropping out and going to another institution. So um, how do you start thinking um, with really, really fresh ideas? And we tried to present a lot of those fresh ideas in the book um, from the folks we interviewed, as well as some of our own fresh ideas that we we thought were fun to share. And, and of course, our contributor, Alvin Freitas, um, had some really cool um, ideas that he shared that were very practical that people could do tomorrow um, at their institution. And so, yeah, I mean, if you're working in higher ed today and you don't have an entrepreneurial spirit, um, you may be more of a boat anchor um, than a catalyst for your institution. Yeah. Well, Joe, let me follow up on that with a, with a question uh, question for you. Um, because clearly, if if we're going to add um, add value in a meaningful way, so that people don't vote uh, with their feet, or as Dr. Joe Salustio said recently, they vote with their clicks, uh, which I think <laughs> yeah. was a pretty insightful um, comment that he made recently. If you're going to achieve some of these uh, these goals, what kind of decision making goes into that, Joe? so that you are assuring people that they're going to get the return on investment that they want. Mm. Yeah. Um, what kind of decision-making is a, is an interesting way to ask that because I immediately went to the internal decision-making structures versus the external decision-making of the student to, that that's looking at ROI. But I think our decision-making structure in higher education, this goes back to your question with Kate, which goes back to your original question about the business model, why we have to think in an entrepreneurial way, is because if we're going to explore what the future holds, it doesn't move like higher ed of the past. It moves like a technology company of the future. And I, you know, Bill, I've wrote about this like ease and speed. This is not actually that much different from what you did at the University of Phoenix all those years ago. Um, you know, st adult students in particular, we, we don't accept we, we equate time and value and ease with value. And, you know, if it's not fast, it probably doesn't have as much value as something that I can get faster because by the time I get it fast and I start using it, I don't need to wait for the thing that takes an extra week to get there. We have, we have such a short attention spans and I find myself, I, I try to self-awareness is an important thing. And I'm, and I'm last night, I'm um, watching a movie and I'm watching it for like 10 minutes and it was my wife was sleeping and it just kind of got too dark. Like the movie was too dark. I was in the dark room and it got too dark. And I was like, I'm just going to stop watching it. I'm just going to go play pool on my phone instead. And I played pool for like five minutes and then I went, oh, I'm kind of bored with that. I think I'll get up and go get a glass of milk. You know, I mean, point is, is that my brain is working in 15 minute increments now 10 minute increments student is too so what does value look like it has to be something that's achievable that's that looks within reach and that's been one of the hard parts about what higher ed has done previously is it looked out of reach for a certain segment of the population you know uh, um the ivy of uh, of the new england you know who who thought about that i did i was like i'll never make it in an ivy league school and it was never accessible to me so that's that myth about higher education has to be deconstructed because the other what 3,999 schools are accessible to students and so we have to change the messaging of accessibility we have to make things faster and easier to access that doesn't mean lower the bar i'm not saying and this is where you get into that funny spot bill 
and you're an academic and you have been for many years where you go, well, if it's fast and it's easy, then it must be terrible. <laughs> right? It must just be uh, absolutely horrible if it's fast and it's easy. That's going to lower the quality of my institution. No, it's going to give you an opportunity to teach the students to the scale that you want to. And if you don't have that scale, you won't have a program. You're going to have one heck of a quality program that's being sunsetted. And I'm not saying lower the bar, but I'm saying define value and let the student lead that discussion. That's an, an excellent point. It's about time you made one. Um, yeah. <laughs> I am well, the smartest man alive! That's uh, <laughs> what you're really talking serious. about, um, and I, I will put words in your mouth, is bringing higher education into mainstream society. And it has to behave and respond to the rest of society in the way that people expect it, whether it's banking or Amazon or whatever. It is. It's quick and easy. And I don't think anybody says that those other institutions don't have quality. You but know, I I've wanna... said it before, Bill, not to interrupt you, but I'm like, yep. right now, how long would it take either of you to go on your bank account where I'm sure you have millions of dollars and check your balance? <laughs> yeah. Maybe yeah, less, 30 uh, seconds. Yeah, less than How long will it take you to go to a school, apply, get accepted, and get all the information you need to start classes? longer yeah. than it will take you to check your bank account and there are a whole lot more restrictions around right. you accessing beyond a certain balance than there would be you accessing and, higher and education. A great, and a great way to extend that analogy that I think is really important for higher education folks to be thinking about is you know people used to always say that you know that higher education is is you know one of the if not the most expensive things you'll ever buy, the biggest investment you'll ever make alongside maybe buying a house, right? We'll talk about buying a house. There are, there's an app for that. I can go get pre-approved for a mortgage in 10 minutes or less. Um, but to Joe's point, can I find out whether I could even get into XYZ University in 10 minutes or less? Nope, probably not. Um, and so I think that's important. And I, I have to say, I want to go back to something Joe said a minute ago about, about institutions beginning to realize that they need to figure out um, how to make themselves more accessible to the students who want to learn from them and how do they make themselves more affordable um, and then how do they start talking about that and um, I'm working on some research right now for for the higher ed industry and we were looking yesterday at sort of messaging like what you know what are the brand positioning statements for some relatively you know elite institutions and I just about jumped out of my chair with joy when I finally saw um, in some of the stuff that we were looking at somebody using that language. It was actually University of Pennsylvania on their undergraduate admissions page actually talks about the, it says the world is a beautiful mess. And they talk about what a changing world an increasingly complex never shifting world needs from the people who are going to work in it and how they provide that to their students um, and how they do that meaningfully. And they actually say, um, you know, what would, what would this education look like? And then they give you kind of a bulleted list. It would do this, it would do that. And one of those bullets was it would be accessible and affordable. And I just wanted to stand up and cheer because accessibility and affordability and wraparound services and true opportunity has always been the message only of community colleges. And now we're starting to see it at the university level. And that's the message we need to start hearing. And so I sure hope that all the other institutions are being put on notice by the institutions who are making a difference and are starting to say, 
why are we keeping prospective learners um, at arm's length because of, you know, we want to maintain some sort of elite status to say our average SAT score is X, Y, and Z. And by the way, some really, you know, elite institutions, you know, Northeastern University is still test optional right now um, and have, has maintained that since the pandemic, I believe. So what does it look like if we just get off of our high horses? I've actually always hated the word higher in the term higher education. And to your point, Bill, about keeping, you know, why is higher education separate from the community, separate from the workforce? Um, higher education needs to step really, really close um, to the communities and regions in which they live, and they need to reach out and grab hands and start making these partnerships um, and reaching into the community and saying, hey, are you in high school or past high school and you have some things you'd like to learn? You want to upskill, reskill, change your career, get deeper, you know, learn something new, meet some new people. Great. We can help you with that. Um, and the institutions that are starting to do that are the institutions that I think are going to take off huge. Yes. Well, I have, uh... ladies and gentlemen, can I have your attention? It's time for us to solve the puzzle of success in higher education. Get your ticket to Elucian Live for industry insights, powerful connections, and innovative solutions. From March 26th through 29th, join peers from around the world in New Orleans to unlock the possibility and drive student and institutional success. Learn more and register at elive.elucian.com. You know that the world of higher education is experiencing evolutions and revolutions. You want to be part of the progress. Commencement, the beginning of a new era in higher education with insights from more than 100 college and university presidents will show you how. Get your copy of Commencement, the beginning of a new era in higher education now on Amazon right away. We think you're going to love it. It's amazing. I'm going to move on to another topic, but before I do, I have one more business uh, model uh, related question, because one of the, the topics, and it's it's there in your table of contents, and it comes up from time to time in your interviews, is, is higher education in a stage of evolution or revolution? And I'm, what I'm thinking about now is, because I just did um, my Add up insights with Bill Peppicello podcast recently. For those of you I knew that would slide in somewhere, you like that? Um, I talk about the business model frequently uh, in that podcast, as Joe knows. Um, but recently, I was looking at um, mergers and acquisitions and OPMs and a lot of these new, I don't know if I'd call them a, a full blown new model. But there's certainly some sort of transitional model, and I wonder what what you gleaned in your interviews. Do people see this as moving us toward the future, or are these band aids? Are these ways that we're saving an unsustainable current business model? <laughs> yeah, um, I'm going to go with band aid. I'm going to go with band aid. Um, I think we're in the revolution stage not the evolution stage i think we're toying with it but we're not truly evolving yet it's interesting ai is forcing that now too and if you actually look at at coronavirus was a catalyst to revolutionize what you are already doing but ai is an opportunity to evolve teaching and learning in a way and forcibly so in a way that is 
making you do something that might be completely different than what you're used to doing, because what you were doing is completely eliminated from being of value at that point. So, you know, OPMs are interesting, Bill, and you know this. I mean, I feel like OPMs came, they, they were re, for-profit for ed re, reimagined, right? The regulations came down on for-profits. You know, so many of them went out of business and, and some smart people went, how do we serve this nonprofit space that's toying with with uh, online education? Well, well, we'll do this shared service model. And a lot of the folks I know and you know went to work for, for uh, OPMs. And now we're seeing the government going, oh, we don't like those either very much. Um, do it yourselves. And that's causing a revolution internally. And I'm part of that with what I'm doing at my university, Lindenwood University, building an online division organically, but it's a revolution. It's, it's not, we're not going, we're, we're saying, what does the future look like? But we have to build what currently exists right now so we can at least penetrate the market somewhat. And then we need to really evolve toward the future. So, you know, it's, we're toying with evolution, I think. Yeah, no, I, I agree. And I think, and here's the problem is that if you take a look at um, sort of how businesses move versus how colleges and universities um, historically move, colleges and universities have always been way behind um, in, in terms of how they think about students as customers and how they think about, um, you know, being responsive and being able to make decisions quickly on behalf of their stakeholders. And so if higher education only continues to sort of iteratively evolve, it will never catch up to where the students are. It will never catch up to what the students need and are demanding. Um, you know, we open our book talking about that, listen, we are, you know, there was a time when the three of us were all educated kind of in a time when a college or university would say, you know, I'm going to provide a really great program to you, you know, and English studies or the classics or geography or whatever else, and it's going to change your life. And we would say, okay, awesome. Thanks. Can't wait to start. And now when institutions are saying that to prospective students, prospective students are saying, hmm, prove it. Show me the ROI. Show me the data. How are your alumni from this program performing? What do their careers look like? How much money do they make? How quickly do they pay back their student loans, et cetera? And so I feel very strongly that higher education, and, and fortunately, a lot of institutions are sort of swimming this direction but the revolution is underway and it has to happen and it has to start spinning faster and faster and faster otherwise we're not going to catch up with the students and guess what there are other post-secondary educational opportunities that are being offered as joe pointed out that don't come from a traditional college or university and if if students prospective learners can't get what they want out of their local college or university, or they'll go get it somewhere else. They'll go get a certificate from the, through their employer. They'll go get some training from a company like Salesforce. They will find a way, or Google, whoever, and they will find a way to learn what they need to learn to get where they need to go. Colleges and universities have to begin to acknowledge that they are only one avenue for educating, upskilling, and reskilling um, professionals for the workforce. And if they don't do it well, and they're, they're going to lose that business to somewhere else. And so I think we're going to see another bigger sector of workforce development rising up that looks very, very different. Um, and the colleges and universities that know how to serve that or partner with those organizations are going to do really, really well. Those are 
really terrific points. This is one of the, the my favorite discussions I've had with uh, with you guys or anybody else in a long time because I frankly was a bit surprised that you went the Band-Aid route instead of uh, the evolution. But what I, to, to sort of summarize from my perspective, uh, what we're seeing with the mergers and acquisitions and OPMs are sort of the battles, but not the war, which mm -hmm. uh, higher education is going to have to wage uh, on a much larger scale if it's going to integrate itself You're into right, society. And it's, it's, it's coming. So we, we did a lot of proprietary research for this uh, book, and we asked um, anonymously because we knew that was the only way to get the answers, <laughs> honestly. Yeah. Um, we asked higher education leaders, um, people director level and above, and um, we asked them, you know, is your institution currently considering or about to begin exploring a merger acquisition or strategic partnership to significantly improve the quality that you can offer to your students to ma maintain viability for your institution for the future? 45% of people said yes. Wow. If we'd asked that question 10 years ago, especially the nonprofits, people would have thought we were, you know, there was a sacrilege that we were asking a question about mergers and acquisitions. Um, and that percentage would have been very, very low. Right. Well, let me, I'm going to uh, shift gears here since I'm still driving the car and, and change direction here uh, a bit. Um, because there's one other item I want to, uh, I want to get to um, in this episode. Uh, and it's related to the business model because what you're describing is a model that uh, will demand, not just need, but demand a different kind of leadership. And leadership is one of the themes that is everywhere in this, uh, uh, in your book, commencement. Um, whether it, it's, uh, you know, whether it's the topic up front of, of, uh, of one of your chapters, or it's just something that comes out as people talk about uh, how they're uh, leading their institutions. So my, the general question is for the both of you, who's gonna lead this new organization? And if you are gonna put together a job description, um, what profile are you looking for? Joe? Uh, you wanna take yeah, that, Joe? Um... Well, I think that's got a couple of answers. Number one, who's going to lead? And I think it's um, a person that could be external or internal to higher education, but one that if they're internal is rethinking how to best communicate their skill sets and what skill sets they need to pick up for the future of higher education. Um, you know, financial acumen, I think that's just important. That came up a lot and it's, 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 important now not that it hasn't been before right so that's that's one of the fascinating things about financial acumen coming up in surveys is the number one you know that we've done is the number one skill well 10 years ago it needed to be the number one skill maybe it just wasn't as urgent but you were still <laughs> man i mean even institutions that have huge endowments are managing cds and long-term investments in annuities and so on so it's always been there um, but I, I think, you know, my answer is starting to shift even and evolve, if you will, as we see the chat GPT uh, and those types of things come in and you go, boy, I better understand technology really well. I, I need to understand the systems within higher education, how data moves and flows and how I can get the insights that I need um, to, to run the business so that it can produce those financials. Um, I do think there's a lot, you know, 
as we see with the um, great resignation and the great reshuffling and people leaving higher education, we had a huge percentage. I can't remember what it was, Kate, but it was like 40 something percent, I think, saying, hey, look, of the people we interviewed for the book saying, I, I, I'm thinking about leaving higher ed. And yeah, I think there's a key, yeah. yeah, there's a key people leadership part of this business that will always be there. Um, and we are starting to see those coming from business and industry be very successful in higher education because they're leading differently. Yeah. I think that will persist. I think it, it does, it's going to take a person, um, the track of faculty to dean to program this to VP of academics to president will be prevalent, still there, but less common than it is now. I think we're going to see more non-traditional leaders in higher ed. And, you know, and Joe's absolutely right. And it's validated by who participated in this book. So um, there was a lot of folks who, a lot of folks who are currently leading um, institutions right now um, who do not have PhD or EDD degrees. They, you know, their MBAs, um, their um, JDs, so lots of lawyers running colleges and universities th these days, lots of smart business people running. Um, Joe is absolutely right. In our survey research, the number one, when we asked people, write us a job description for the skill set, leadership skill set of the future for higher education, financial acumen as a required experience was number one, um, followed by extensive experience working in higher education and progressive roles. Um, but we also saw other experience that they considered beneficial was CEO experience in any industry. Um, so this whole idea of sort of insiders versus outsiders, it's not just all insiders who are making it um, to, to the leadership ranks. And, and in terms of, you know, some of the things that you have been talking about today, Bill, about operating models, when we asked in terms of character traits or like personality or just sort of disposition, what's the most important required character trait for a president um, in the future. Number one was open-mindedness to new structures and operating models. And yeah. so, so I love that, that you came into today's conversation, Bill, saying let's talk about operating models um, because we need to. And folks who are going to lead us there um, have to have an open mind to it and an excitement about it. Um, and, and Joe was also talking about the humanity of it. You know, we need presidents um, and and others in the C-suite level and, and and at every level really of of institutions saying, uh, be willing to say I don't I don't know the answer. So so vulnerability, right? That was really great when we uh, we talked to um, uh, Rich Dunsworth, uh, president of the University of the Ozarks, and and he had said, you know, sometimes I don't know is the right answer, and and, and sometimes it's the most authentic answer. And so that was one of the things that we saw uh, coming through our research and our conversations is this need um, to understand the numbers, to understand um, how not to be one of the schools that's closing its doors right now because, because they ignored their balance sheet at their peril for the last five or 10 years. So how to understand the finances, how to be open to sort of how to skate to where the puck is going um, in higher education and how to be really human and authentic and honest and open about it as we get there. Um, and so I'm excited because we all know what presidents and other leaders in higher ed um, maybe used to look like. And I think this new profile um, is what's needed to get us where we're going. Yeah, you know, I, I think that brings us to a, a really important point, and it's uh, it's one of the ones that I bring up in my book, Leadership on the Field of Play, which is available on Amazon. And also on my desk right now. Ah, I have a copy well, of it on my bookshelf. You can see it over my shoulder. <laughs> so. Well done, folks. Um, 
but the it's the issue of culture because what you're talking about is bringing in a new kind of leadership basically at the top and the question becomes is that culture going to trickle down uh, how is it going to be assimilated into institutions? Because we know that one of the, the major reasons that any kind of business merger fails, or even when it's not a merger, is when you get a culture clash. Yeah. And I mean, how do you see that playing out with uh, the kind of uh, model that we're talking about? I'm going to go with this one um, real fast. And I actually said this on a previous episode that by the time this one comes out, that one will have come out. But higher ed, for everybody listening to this, you know it to be true. We have an assimilation culture. If you're from the outside or you come in with some type of experience from the outside, there's an expectation over the medium term, maybe not so much in the short term, but over the medium term that you assimilate to the structure that all that exists, right? If yeah. you, if the, if, if this piece of information typically goes through this three committee structure, even if you're brand new and you have a piece of information and you go, why do I, why do I have to go through that committee structure? There's an expectation that you follow this structure because that's what we do. And the culture needs to be blown up a little bit. It needs, we need to break a couple panes of glass and say, that can't be. And, and I, I've said it a million times. If I'm the student, why would I wait for you? Why would I wait for you to give me anything? I'm not going to wait. I'm going to go over here to the person that moves faster. And we do that in our everyday lives. And why don't we do that in higher ed? And I think that for me, that that is it, Bill. It's it's the leadership of the future is are those leaders that can that can systematically reimagine the processes that exist within higher education so that we get a better result or the, even the same or similar result, but we do it faster and better and easier. Yeah. I mean, I've never heard that, that term assimilation culture. And I love that Joe. I mean, that's, it's exactly true. You come in and you, you have difference and you have, and you, but you are asked immediately in higher ed to, well, well, you know, do it the way we do it. Do it the way we've always done it. I'm sure you have these great ideas from the other industry you worked in, but we're not going to do it that way. But I do think, you know, to your question, Bill, if people, if leaders who come in or ascend um, to the highest levels of a college or university say, we're not going to do that crap anymore. We're not going to put you through, through three committees to make this decision, or we need to act fast. We made we made decisions on the fly in the pandemic, um, and we can do it now going forward. Um, I think that that's, that's really um, the future. I know that, that um, the, you know, at, at Joe's institution, um, you know, the president at, at Lindenwood, um, uh, John Porter, you know, said to us when, when he was interviewed for the book, when he was just like, listen, he's like, there's no reason higher education has to move slowly. He's like, there's just not. He's like, we're going to get the information we need. We're going to think about it. Um, and we're going to make a decision and we're not going to put it through all of this. And I, I talk, I'm really candidly in the book as well, that I was very fortunate in one of the higher ed positions that I had to, to work for a chief marketing officer who literally said to me when I was hired, he said, my bias is toward action. And he said, and what I mean by that is that if I'm not available and I'm not here or whatnot, and you have a decision to make, um, as a director of marketing, I trust you to make the right decision on behalf of our stakeholders. Please make it and keep things moving forward. And when, you, when we bump into each other again, let me know how we did it. And guess what? 
You might do it differently than I would do it as the CMO, but I would much rather find out that you did it than that we're sitting still and holding off on making a decision that needs to be made, an action that needs to be made for our stakeholders. Um, and that was a really empowering way for me to lead and operate in my role to know that I was trusted by my boss to do the right thing for the customer um, and to keep things moving forward. And I think that if we have leaders like that in higher ed who say, let's get stuff done and let's get good stuff done on behalf of our stakeholders and we'll check in with each other and obviously we'll have processes, um, but we do not need death by committee for all of these great ideas anymore. Yeah. Well, you you cute kids really made some good points there. Um, and I and I use that term um, because you you take me back to a time where uh, we had uh, very similar attitudes to yours when I was at University of Phoenix, and that was we just we needed to do things better, quicker, uh, keeping the student at the center. Um, and happily, we didn't have as much pushback as some of traditional higher ed uh, encounters. But one of the things that that I found, and I do talk about this in in one of the episodes of uh, Ed Up Insights, is that whenever you wanted move forward, when you do want to not have you know, death by committee, when you want to fix the processes, what I found always worked for me was I went to, the, to my community. I went to the faculty. I went to the deans. I went to the students and said, you know, do you think we could do this better? And you know what? There were always people who jumped on board and said, yeah, let's do it. Um, and it's how some of the major innovations at University of Phoenix came about, because faculty would say, well, you know, this has always frustrated me. I think I can <laughs> fix it. And students would say, yeah, we'd really like it if you did this. And the next thing you know, we had we had change afoot. And it's that's exactly what you're talking about is sort of the um, yeah. the next generation represented by you guys of, of where this needs to go. You're absolutely right, Bill, and, and, I, and I appreciate you saying that because I, I want to be clear that when when we talk in the book and, and when I talk about you know things moving slowly in higher education, um, the interesting thing about that is it's there's this systemic anxiety or this sort of sort of stuck mindset that happens in higher education, but if it, collectively, but individually, which is what you're talking about, if you go to the individual faculty member and individual um, admissions director everybody's passionate. Everybody wants to do things differently. Everybody wants to be more modern and, and act on behalf of the student. And so it's really interesting that there's sort of culture that's been holding everyone back. Um, but when given permission to say, hey, let's do this differently, or I want to listen to that idea you have, um, suddenly so many people are on board. And that's why I'm so confident um, that the future of higher education is really going to be quite remarkable. Yeah. And I agree. And um you know, I don't. I don't with that, I think we're we're going to wind up this particular episode. Um, and I, you know, the insights here, I think, are are ones that I hope folks will go back to your book and and look for. That's commencement. Um, and uh, you know, in the next episode of this, we're going to hit some more of the the big picture issues in higher education and talk about the how this book can change lives as well as perspective. And with that, Joe, I'm going to turn the keys back over to you and let you uh, take us out. 
It's like uh, giving the keys to my 17-year-old kid to drive the podcast car here, Bill. Thanks for (laughs) handing it back to the adult. Uh, No, it's okay. Bill's one of a kind, ladies and gentlemen, at Up Insights, one of the amazing network shows on the Up Experience Network. You can check out edupexperience.com for all the shows. Uh, We appreciate you. Thanks for listening. You can pick up commencement at the beginning of a new era in higher education on Amazon. And if you're interested in bulk orders, contact my amazing co-author, Kate Colbert. She does all the hard work around here. Kate, thank you for coming. Bill, thank you for hosting. Ladies and gentlemen, you've just ed upped. Ladies and gentlemen, it's time for some um, um, amazing news. It's time to work together to solve the puzzle of success in higher education. Belusian Live returns to New Orleans from March 26th through 29th to help you unlock possibility for your institution. And yes, the EdUp experience will be there recording live. Industry leaders from all across the world are converging to discover new insights, game-changing solutions, and powerful connections, all with the goal of addressing higher ed's greatest opportunities and biggest challenges. You do not want to miss Elusian Live. Learn more and secure your seat today at elive.elusian.com. It will be amazing. It's time to level up. The beginning of a new era in higher education begins with you. Order your copy of Commencement. The Beginning of a New Era in Higher Education by Kate Colbert, Dr. Joseph Lucio, with contributions by Elvin Freitas. It's Higher Education's must-read book of 2022. Discover how you can seize the moment to change higher education forever. Commencement, the beginning of a new era in higher education, now available on Amazon. For bulk orders, contact Kate, Joe, or Elvin. 